Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hi, friends. I just want to say welcome to my new podcast. You're doing a good job. And if you don't know, my name is Caleb, and I'm your host. Can I just say that when it comes to this podcast, it is my deepest desire not only to inspire you and challenge you, but also to remind you, regardless of where you're at in life, that you're doing a good job. On this podcast, we will dive deep and explore what it looks like to expand our lives consciously. Because when we expand our lives consciously, we become more emotionally aware, present, and connected people. And when we do become more emotionally aware, present, and connected, we win. Our relationships win, our self-worth wins, our sense of purpose wins, and most importantly, our mental health and emotional wellness win. Now, if you follow me on social media or if you know anything about my story, then you'll know that mental health and emotional wellness are a big part of my journey. I often talk about how I did reach my dreams of playing in the NFL, but I lost myself in the process. And after years of healing and redefining that season of my life, It is a passion of mine to share a message and to help facilitate brave conversations around how we can begin to integrate our mental fortitude and determination to expand our lives with the power of vulnerability and emotional skills. Because when we live more consciously aware and integrated, we unlock our lives. We unlock our lives physically, emotionally, financially, and relationally. Just recently, I had the chance to read a book how to raise an adult, break free of the overparenting trap, and prepare your kid for success. This book is by Julie Lithcott Haynes, and as I was reading it, I was overwhelmed in the best of ways. Truthfully, up until reading this book, I never directly correlated the mental health challenges that I experienced as a young adult to the direct effects of being overparented as a child. It was eye-opening to me in so many ways. Not only that, but as I was reading this book, I could feel it deep in my bones that I would naturally want to overparent, despite knowing the damaging long-term effects it could have on a child. And that's when I knew I had to have Julie on my podcast to talk more about her research on overparenting in her book. This podcast episode is full of deep wisdom, but make no mistake, it will challenge you. So if you're ready to lean into your edges of growth as a person and as a parent, you're going to love this episode. On this episode of You're Doing a Good Job, we dive deep into what is overparenting and how and when did it originate. We also talk about what's really going on behind the need to overparent and what you should do about it. And lastly, we talk about the importance of redefining success as a parent and where to draw the line between making decisions for your children and giving them the space to forge their own paths in life. I promise you, you're going to walk away with so much from this episode. Julie is one of a kind, and not only does she know what she's talking about, but she oozes compassion and empathy. And if you don't know, Julie Lithcott Hames, she believes in humans and is deeply interested in what gets in our way. She is the New York Times bestselling author of the Anti-Helicopter Parenting Manifesto, How to Raise an Adult, which gave rise to a TED Talk that has more than 5 million views. Her second book is the critically acclaimed and award-winning prose poetry memoir, Real American. 
which illustrates her experience as a black and biracial person in white spaces. A third book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, is out now. Julie is a former corporate lawyer and Stanford dean, and she holds a Bachelor of Arts from Stanford, a JD degree from Harvard, and a Master of Fine Arts in Writing from California College of the Arts. She serves on the board of Common Sense Media and on the advisory board of LeanIn.org, and she is a former board member at the Foundation for a College Education, Global Citizen Year, the Writer's Grotto, and Challenge Success. She volunteers with the hospital program, No One Dies Alone. Lastly, before we dive into this podcast, can I ask a big favor? If you find this episode useful in any way, it would mean the world to me if you left a review on this podcast or just took the time to share this episode with one friend that you might think would benefit from it. That would be so, so helpful. And now that we've got that out of the way, here's what Julie has to say. I read your book, How to Raise an Adult, <laughs> and I was overwhelmed because I don't think I, in the best of ways, because I don't think I've ever actually directly correlated to so much of the trauma or so much of the, the frustration and despair that I experienced later on in my adult life as a direct correlation to being a child of someone who wildly overparented me. And so I, um, I was just reading this and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I'm laughing because I don't have kids right now. And I looked mm -hmm. at my wife and I said, Kara, we're screwed. I'm going to be an overparenter. I'm going to overparent. Like I can feel it as you're reading these stories. I'm like, this is in my bones. <laughs> and so what I would love to accomplish with our time today is just simply maybe go through that trajectory that you laid out in the book. Um, why they're doing that or why we're doing that. Uh, the problems that it's creating. And then obviously how we can, how we can change that. Um, and how we can parent differently, um, if you're okay with that. I know you probably have given this interview a million times. Well, this is new, Caleb, and here's why. And I'm sort of having one of those mind-blown moments because I have been wondering what it would be like for somebody your age mm. to be at a stage where you are contemplating maybe one day being a parent, having been overparented yourself. I have been waiting for these dawning awarenesses to come. Mm. I'm curious, you know, I mean, when I first began identifying the problem of overparenting, very few people who'd been overparented were having kids. Yeah. So it's open question of what will it be like? When will they come to their own self-awareness that maybe they were raised this way mm -hmm. and maybe there were some problems with it and maybe some good things and how are they going to show up in their own adult lives and how are they going to show up in the lives of their own children if they have them? So I am, this is new for me. Awesome. Um, you're in your. I'm 36. I was going to say mid thirties. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it makes perfect sense. So um, yeah. Uh, so in a nutshell, how do we get here? Like, what is it? Overparenting is um, basically feeling like you have to micromanage your kid's life in order for mm -hmm. them to be successful. Uh, we don't want to be micromanaged in the workplace and it doesn't feel good in the workplace. It does not feel good um, to be micromanaged as a child. The child may not realize they're being micromanaged because it looks like help yeah. and it looks like love. And it does come from a place of love. 
It comes from a parent's love and fear. Like if I don't, you will fail. If I don't, you will die. I mean, you know, we tend to catastrophize lately in parenting. Like just in case, I have to always be there. I have to always be mindful, always be vigilant, vigilant just in case. And so it's parents' love and fear and also ego. And that's the piece that I really try to focus on when I'm giving parents advice. Like, what is it in you that is so empty such that you have to fill your own sense of self with the micromanagement of your kid's life? Like, you need them to get an A so they get to the right school, so they get to the right college, to the right career, so you can feel whole. Mm. That's problematic. And helping parents appreciate, no, you have a life. It, it has included having this child, maybe some others. You have work, you have hobbies, you have friends, you should. Your child is not your project or your pet, right? They're not your trophy, not the evidence of your value. They are the, a different human. And your job is to shelter them and feed them and love the hell out of them and be responsible for them until yeah. they can be responsible for themselves. And what's missing when we overparent is we do so much. I'm so responsible. I am always there. I'm handling it. I'm planning it out. I'm handling it when it happens. I'm fixing anything that goes awry. I'm reminding. I'm, I'm, you know, I, 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 I am making this life happen for this child. We get so involved. They never can become responsible for themselves because we've deprived them of every opportunity to practice when the stakes were so much lower. So um, we're depriving our, so the, so the three types are, we call them by funny names like tiger parent, helicopter parent, snowplow parent, drone parent, lawnmower. Lawnmower. <laughs> uh, sorry, for warmer climates like LA and Nashville. <laughs> lawn, um, and the, the types boil down to, and a parent can be doing one type or two of the three or all three overprotection, which is the worry, 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 always need to know where you are, GPS tracking you, mm. even though, you know, you're an adult and you should be able to, you know, have some privacy for goodness sake, um, <laughs> GPS tracking you just always like always need to be always vigilant, like mm -hmm. the sentry, like watching. Um, so then probably didn't let you take public transportation. You're probably never alone at a park, like never just always watched. <clears throat> the fiercely directive parent is you will be a doctor. You'll be an engineer. Yeah. You will go into finance, right? That person has in mind, maybe six careers that are acceptable that you'd better um, bring into, you, you, you better pursue one of them to be loved. Mm. So that parent is very controlling around what you do. You will be a tennis star. You will be a golf star. You will be a concert pianist, right? I'm Amy Chua, Tiger Mother. Like my job is to make you into this thing. And that kid ends up really, you know, struggling with, well, who am I actually? Wow. And that kid is likely at some point to rebel and say, fuck you, you know, like, yeah. no. When they're old enough to finally say like, wait a minute, <clears throat> the third type is the very kind, helpful concierge parent, the uh, let me take care of it. I'll handle it like you're an A-lister um, and they're your press person or your handler, you know, like I'm going to make like, here's where you need to be. I'll make it happen. I'll call the car. I'll, I'll remind you, right. It's, it's, I'll be your best friend. Like how can I make childhood easier? Is that parent's approach? So you can see there are three very different approaches and some of us embody you know, one type, two or three, as I've said. And um, they all look like they help in the short term. Yeah. Like I got you that job, right? Cause I, 
I filled out the form. I, I updated your resume. I called, you know, I got you there. Like I've gotten you to this place, the over directive, you know, I made sure you never got a zero. I made sure you'd always turn in your homework. I made sure, you know, I argued with the coach to get you more playing time. Um, I was there watching. I made sure you didn't fall. It looks like it helps short-term gain, long-term yeah. pain. Cause the kid wasn't allowed to mess up, screw up, try it, get it kind of well done-ish, sort of like learn from doing. And so yeah. the kid has been deprived of the learning process. They've arrived at this place of like, aha, I'm grown, but I can't do a damn thing, or I'm really not confident I can do much because I've never had to. And that means the kid is lacking a sense of agency, yeah. like I can. Resilience, I can cope when stuff goes badly because stuff will go badly mm. always most of life is out of our control. We have to respond and be strong. We've got to be like sapling trees. When you plant a sapling in the ground, it's a tiny little, you know, trunk and you plant a piece of wood, a, a dowel next to it and tether it, you know, to, so the sapling is here. This is the piece of wood and they're tied together. And that means that when the wind blows, the sapling doesn't blow over because it's tied to the wood. The wood is the parent, the sapling's yeah. the kid. We're supposed to, as gardeners, move that dowel, loosen it, loosen it, loosen it, so that the sapling can start to bend a little bit in the breeze and strengthen as it grows. And then ultimately you can move the dowel away because it's had practice of growing stronger. And that's a nice visual for what parenting is supposed to be. Not, I'm always by your side, because then you have a kid who's forever weak because they've never had to, they've never been given the chance to develop the strength. Yeah, I, what I hear too with those three different types of parenting uh, that you had just mentioned, what it feels like and what it sounds like, it's really parents parenting from fear, yeah. right? It's whether the fear of you're going to make the same mistakes that I made, you're going to miss out on opportunities that I didn't take, or, you know, I'm going to never allow you to not reach your fullest potential because I didn't reach my fullest potential. And so what it sounds like, it's the epitome of really, we hear it often inside of romantic partnerships, but a codependent relationship. Yep. It's codependent. Um, it's fear of those things. And it's also, I need my friends to see my child has done this well. Come on. I feel judged almost like I've entered in the, you know, dog people. There's a Westminster dog show, like the most famous dog show in America. And it's like, this is my dog. I mean, my child, I've entered them in the race of life, but I'm in charge. I will decide what obstacles they go through, yeah. what they soar through, and I will get the trophy and everyone will applaud me and my dog, my child, but me. And there is that. So my Instagram yeah. needs to be filled with evidence of my worth as a parent who has shepherded these young toward these spaces. Yeah, There's definitely a fine line between I'm so proud of you versus I'm living vicariously through you. And That's I, a beautiful yeah, I definitely had to uh, have that conversation with my mom, who I love dearly, who has played such a pivotal role in my life. Um, but so much of the healing work that I've had to do in my life is reestablishing healthy boundaries between my relationship between my mother and I. And I had to at one point, you know, because my mom was with me by my side from high school. And then when I went to West Point and then graduating West Point and becoming an officer, then finding myself in the NFL, I had to get to this point where I'm like, mom, is this about you or is this about me? And that was a hard conversation, but it just goes back to what I initially said. There's a fine line between, hey, I'm really proud of you and want to support you. But between that and then I'm also just living vicariously through you. 
Caleb, you know, because you have read How to Raise an Adult. Yes. I went to West Point to ask them. I didn't literally go. I was on the phone. I, I've read I was, this. Like, I'm dean dealing with overparented young people on my campus <laughs> with a lot of hunches that this is different and probably not good. Let me go to the places that have historically dealt mm-hmm. with the very same age group for decades or centuries and ask them what has changed. And I was yeah. like, hmm, West Point, <laughs> right? Preparing people to be officers in the United States Army for centuries, let me call them, they were delighted to talk with me about how parents were encroaching and wanting yeah. to participate in that final thing, that end of your boot camp, that long slog march. Parents want to now come on that march with their kid, show up, you know, like, no, you didn't earn this. Like, yes, mm. you love and support this kid, but you have not walked this pathway toward becoming whatever the next level is, right? And I also talked to the people at Peace Corps, which has been sending young Americans to go be of service in developing countries for decades. And and all of a sudden they're like, oh, hey, parents are saying, I'm worried about my child. You mean your 24 year old who's in the Peace Corps? Yes. Whereas for centuries before, I'm not centuries, decades, it was like, you're 24, your parents know that something terrible happens, they'll get a phone call, Mm -hmm. but they're not trying to be all up in your business. I was laughing because you uh, reference uh, General Douglas MacArthur and the story around his mom moving to West Point so that she could spy on him to make sure that he was studying. Can I just tell you that my mom moved to West Point? <laughs> there was there was a bigger story unfolding in that season of life and some marriage marriage uh, challenges, and my mom actually ended up following me to to West Point and. I received as a, a top division one college football player when I was playing at football, I received a lot of honor and accolades and a lot of attention. And it was clear because my mom had walked through thick and thin. She did with me, right? It was her attention. She deserved her attention as well. And again, I'm, I, I love my mother and I honor her with the utmost respect, but yeah. like we started off th- with this conversation, I didn't realize how many of the challenges that I would go on and face as a young adult were directly related to me being overparented. And I think I would love to kind of backtrack just a few seconds here. And can we talk a little bit more about where did this this term helicoptering parents uh, originate? Uh, how long has it been around? Just so that we have a little bit more context to what we're sure. speaking about. Sure. Um yeah, so um, I'm going to reference my book, How to Raise an Adult, which came out in 2015, um, and I break this down for listeners. Um, I, I want you to know, I break this, how did we get here? I break it down in the opening chapter. Um, basically, in the 1980s, <clears throat> we were seeing a lot of changes to childhood um, in no particular order. Um the play date was started in 1984. Um, uh Stranger Danger was born in 1983. Um, Ribbons and trophies, certificates and awards for playing football, but not necessarily for being good at it. Just let's give everyone a a participation trophy began in California in the late, in the early eighties. We got a lot safer in cars and on bicycles with car seat laws, seat belt laws and bike helmet laws being enacted across the 50 states in the mid-1980s. And A Nation at Risk was published in sometime in that era saying American teenagers needed to be more adept in school. We needed more testing, more teaching to the test as a result to compete with teenagers 
around and young adults around the world. So from homework and testing to the sidelines of kids' activities to play itself um, to um, you know life in general, yeah. kids were now being watched and managed and handled. Our fear of strangers meant you're never out of our sight. Our sense that we could make our environment safer, like car seats and bike helmets and seatbelts are all keeping us alive. Yeah. Great. But it led to a mentality of bubble wrap childhood, bubble wrap every corner in the house. When I was coming up, I'm 53. It was, you know, put a latch on the on the cabinet that contains the poison, you know, like the rat poison so the kids don't die. But everything else is like, oh, you hurt your finger out. Yeah, but that didn't feel very good. Right. That's how a kid learns to be careful around drawers and knobs and and the stove and so on. So we began to prepare the road for the kid instead of preparing the kid for the road. Mm. Hypervigilant parenting in response to these various factors. And so that term was was labeled um, in the uh, early 90s, I believe it was, or late 80s. Helicopter parent uh, was the name given to the concept. Um, and it's been with us ever since. And like I said, it appears to work. So it doesn't look like it's harmful to be extra vigilant. It wasn't until folks grew up, yeah. started to make their way into the workforce, into the military, into college, and were less capable of making choices, solving problems, uh, rebounding when bad things happened, that we began to equate that and then the mental health difficulties that come because you're more likely to be anxious and or depressed if you've been raised with this parent always there, always needing to know, always needing to handle, check in. Um, so we began to see the studies around the mental health impact of all of this, not until the early 2000s. Um, so this is a long-term, the bad the negative outcomes only come after you've had a life that uh, lived that way and you're trying to make your way into your later teenage years and young adult years and you start to realize something's not right. Yeah, I'm so compassionate towards the like parents because there are so many pressures that you're even facing. It's not just like believing in your child and wanting to see your child succeed, but there's also societal pressures of what you should be doing as a parent, right? And we live in a society of shame. If you do this, you're shamed. If you do that, you're still shamed. And in a lot of ways, it feels like no matter what you do, um, it, you're going to be reminded that either you're wrong or it's not enough. And I can only imagine that a lot of these parents are feeling deeply overwhelmed. And I'm just curious. So inside of your book, you said that there was a quote, I think, from a German writer, poet, and philosopher. Um, I think it's uh, Joanne Wolfgang. Van Gogh, yeah. right? Yeah. And he says, there are two great things that children should get from their parents, roots and wings. What does that mean to you? And, and why is that important? Yep. Um, I believe his last name is pronounced Van Goethe. Okay. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> no, no, no worries. Um, roots and wings. Uh, roots are that strong thing that holds you, your foundation, uh, like a anchor for a boat, um, it will keep you from like just sailing off into the bewildering unknown. Like the roots are what anchor you. The roots are always there for you, um, keeping you strong in the ground. I think about these beautiful redwood trees here in California. Um, I think about any large tree, you know, like the root system is what nourishes you mm. and keeps you stable. And so kids need that. And then wings are the ability to go to go and soar, to stand on the edge of possibility, unfurl those wings and let the winds take you where they will. Picture a bird soaring on the California coast or the 
you know, wherever you are, like picture a bird just taking the air as it comes and dipping and right. It's just the ability to go and be, be carried um, by forces that are not you, but also with the strength and ability that you bring, you know, life will offer you opportunities. How do you meet them? You meet them with your wings unfurled and you, you don't want to feel like I can't unfurl my wings. The wind is too strong. I have to cower in the corner. Like I can't get out there. No, no, no. We want you out there. We want you out there soaring and going ultimately in the direction through your own decision-making and strength and so on going in the direction you want to go. It's that sense of agency. Yeah. Right. Do you find that, or would you say that this might be a, a broad statement, but a lot of the midlife crises that we see as adults um, are, are because we weren't given the space or the permission to live out the life that we wanted to live or the space to, be curious enough to make our own decisions and our paths were forged for us by our parents? I think that is the source of a midlife crisis for many. Yes, it's that reckoning. You realize at some point, oh, hey, I'm getting wrinkles. My hair is graying. Oh my goodness, I'm no longer as strong. My knees hurt. You know, I'm just, you do start to get evidence of your own aging. And I think it forces a reckoning of like, have I done, am I who I want to be? Have I done any of the things I had thought I would do? Am I still, do I still have it? Am I still young? Am I still appealing? You know, um, it's a lot of sort of clinging to the younger things um that's historically been the sort of definition of the midlife crisis it's clinging to that youthfulness and trying to keep the trap of youthfulness around you even if you've aged out of that for you at 36 and your cohort i imagine there may be a hey wait a minute you know i am i need to be in charge of this one wild and precious life of mine i'm quoting the Mm, late here right I'm in charge. I want to be in charge. I at least want to try to be in charge. You know, you've read the book and you know that there's a guy named Tyler mm-hmm. who is a law student, highly successful, brand name college, brand name law school. Parents said you'll be a lawyer. They were lawyers. They marched him down that path. He was doing exceedingly well. His mother was, however, micromanaging everything, including speaking to him three times a day on the mm-hmm. phone in law school. And finally, here he is, like 25, 26, he yells at her mom, I love you. Just like you're saying, like, you love your mom. Tyler loved his mom, but was like, mom, your voice is the only voice in my head. I need to hear my own voice. And um, he stopped talking to her. That's what he needed to do. He was very depressed. He needed that space. He needed to create boundaries. She was talking to her friends, like, he won't talk to me. Wow, wow. Yeah, like, (laughs) and her friends were like, He's a grown man. Stop. You do not need to be in touch with him throughout the day. And of course, for that mom, the work she needed to do was how can I fill my life Come on. with things other than having to know everything about my son or handling things for him and so on, right? To differentiate. You called it codependency and you're absolutely right. And we need the person who is more inclined to want to be codependent to figure out what can I fill my life with? My life includes my child, but is not my child, right? I have a child who is part of my life, but there's more to my life. And this is where we parents can get into real martyring. Like Mm. I did everything for you. Like, and, and again, that's the sort of, you're my pet. You're on my leash. You know, I'm always here. It's, it's really unhealthy. Let me say Caleb, cause I haven't, 
I'm a mom. (laughs) Like I've got a 21 year old son. I've got a 19 year old daughter and the humility that I have garnered. I mean, Mm. when I, I can't remember now, cause I wrote this, you know, I published six years ago, wrote it seven, eight years ago. I can't remember how forthcoming I was about my own overparenting tendencies. I was a little bit, but I'm telling you, I have learned so much more as I've watched my kids grow. I'm, I'm over parenting too. I'm the concierge uh, type, like the handler, like I'll just make it easier. I'm a little directive about what they should do with their lives. And I have watched those chickens come home to roost. And yeah. so I'm here with tremendous compassion and humility and curiosity and a clear sense that like we parents for the sake of our children and for the sake of ourselves, we need to stop. Look, yeah. if you're over parenting, you don't have a life. Mm. How many of us are like, oh, I can't go to that football game because we have a midterm tomorrow. No, you don't have a midterm. <laughs> Your kid's midterm. Go out, go to the club, you know, go to the party, go to the gallery opening, go to the book club, go to the adult thing you're looking forward to. And let Trust that your kid can manage themselves for a couple of hours to prepare for a midterm without you being there. They might even be better at mm-hmm. it because you're not there constantly needing to know how's it going and have you studied hard enough? Yeah. To continue kind of this, this thread right here, one of the most, uh, I think, impactful or what stood out to me the most when it came to the repercussions of overparenting is we inevitably shape the way that our children dream. And you kind of touched on that, but I know that for me, when I got to the NFL, my life began to crumble and I began to self-destruct. There was a a reckoning where I had to ask, like, who am I? Like beyond football, who am I? Why am I here? And there was so much um, identity work that had to be done. And I had to ask myself this question. It's like, did I even want to play football? And I think I did, but I also know that I don't know if I had the permission to do anything else yeah. because my, I, I want to say my parents did do the best of their ability. They saw this young, their young son with talent um, and skills, and they did their best to hone it and to craft it. But somewhere along the line, it wasn't because I wanted to play, but because of the pressure being applied on me to play, right? Because that was what I was supposed to do with my life. And so I do believe in a lot of ways, the overparenting, it did shape the way that I dreamed for my life. So I'm kind of the challenge that I have and that I felt really uh, big when I was reading this book, when I was referenced like, oh my God, I'm going to overparent, is how do we draw the line with giving our kids the space to forge their own paths? Like, what does that look like? Because I can imagine it's a dance, right? It's probably a dance between I'm here for you. I want to make the best for you. I don't think that decision is probably the best decision for you, but I'm still going to stand back while you make that decision. Is that, is this what we're playing with here? I'm just so delighted to be a part of your, I'm a tiny part of your journey right now. You are? And it's an honor. Um, And man, am I rooting for you? Thank you to say clearly, I'm not so sure that if it had just been up to me, I would have pursued the football as far as I did. It's Mm. totally valid to feel that way, Caleb. Mm. Thank you. 100%. Get more comfortable saying that to yourself. Mm -hmm. You will heal yourself from the loss or the truth of that. Obviously good that came. And there's a piece of you that's like, you know, I might've done something different. Mm. Um, And I want you to know at 36, your life is wide open Mm. and you need to be asking yourself, 
all right, so what if it was just up to me? Mm-hmm. What might I do? What do I want to lean into and learn more about? Where's my growth edge? Mm-hmm. You know, you're somebody who knows that life is precious and you know that you don't want to be complacent and just sort of, I'm fine. You know, I have the money I need, I'm fine. Or I have the position, I, I'm fine. No, you're a living, breathing human and and to live is an active verb. And you want to always be saying, all right, what am I curious about? What do I want to work on within myself? Where are the ways in which I can grow and be of greater use to my community, to the things that matter to me, to my family, et cetera, okay? So continually asking that question. Now to your question mm-hmm. you about what parenting, first of all, it's profound respect that this child is a human mm. and I am a human and we are not the same. Mm. This child is a gift from the universe or God or however you believe is the meta thing going on here. They are not my property. They are not my possession. I am here to offer unconditional love, food, structure, safety, a roof to keep them safe until they can keep themselves safe. And I need to take a continuous interest in them developing the various skills they will need so that they can leave this home well-equipped with agency and resilience and good character to thrive out there. Parents will say to me, where's the line? You know, and I I have a couple of ways to describe it. Um, One is um, if we're safety, if we're the overprotective type, totally afraid, or the fiercely directive, or really the concierge have to handle everything. It's like a game of bowling where we've taken the bumpers, the guardrails that are on the edge to, so our kid is the bowler. They're going to throw the ball that they're, they're, being out there in life is them throwing the ball. They're trying to hit the 10 pins and we don't want them to go in the gutter. Cause that would be like, they have completely failed. That might happen a few times, but we're trying to, you know, let's say that's the metaphorical equivalent of my kid. Something terrible happens. We, yeah. We're trying to prevent the terrible. And so, yes, those bumpers should be there as they are in, in a game of bowling, but we parents lately have brought in the guardrails and like this. So our kid only needs to go down the straight and narrow path. All they have to do is throw the ball and it's, it's just going to, hit the hit the pins and they didn't learn how to really develop the skill to hit those pins because we brought in the guardrail so we want to have the guardrails here most things in life are not going to kill our kids we're supposed to prevent them from dying drowning jumping you know falling off a cliff right most other things are opportunities to throw the ball and they'll learn oh i got to do it differently okay We, we have to delight in the small oopses and lessons that life will teach them, that is how they get strong and learn to be more capable and more self-reliant, more confident. Another metaphor is um, the minute they learn to walk, they're walking away. Again, you're supposed to keep them from walking into traffic um, or walking into the hands of harm, but you're supposed to be excited that they're developing skills. To over-parent at the level of learning to walk would be, okay, I'm going to stand behind you. So if you fall, I can catch you. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'll even put my hands under your little underarm so that I'm kind of propping you up. So if you fall, you just sort of sag into my strong arms and, you know, we'll kind of walk forward together with my body right up again. Nobody does that, Caleb, mm-hmm. because that wouldn't work. We all know I could walk my kid forward, but they don't have the strength. They don't have this quad strength, the core strength, the sense of balance. So all I've done is prop them up. That's what overparenting can effectively be. We don't do it when they're learning to stand and walk. We don't say, get up. We're walkers in this family. What's wrong with you? Your brother's already walking. We don't do that. We just say, yay, look at you. And the kid falls and they pull back up and they fall. 
pull and they pull back up and we're not embarrassed, mm. not mortified. What's wrong with them? We're like, go kid. We know the only way they'll ever be capable is by falling and getting back up. And if we could hold that memory of how delighted we were when they were one, if we could hold that memory for two and four and five and seven and nine and 12 for everything yeah. that has to be learned, like, yep, they're learning exactly what they need to be learning. Okay, it's parenting for the long view, trusting that it is the failings of life that teach them the lessons that make them stronger. It's that. So therefore, to the, to the sorry, I'm so long-winded. No, this is beautiful. Question, um, Bill Damon, who's a professor at Stanford, says, who writes about adolescence, he says, you can't give your kid a passion, like what they should do, football, piano, whatever. You can't give them a passion any more than you can give them a personality. Okay. Mm. They, they need to find, they have their own strengths, skills, interests. He says, but you can look for, listen, watch for the spark of interest in your kid, like the spark and you can fan the flames. So the, the source of the interest comes from the kid. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. see that, oh, he's really got a great golf swing. Maybe he's interested in golf. You know, you fan the flames. It's their interest. You fan the flames by what can I afford to offer by way of after school, summertime. You know, maybe your kid loves digging in the dirt and is fascinated by rocks and keeps bringing rocks into the house. And it's like, oh, my kid might be interested in that. You know, maybe we got to take him to a museum, buy him some books, like show him a video of a geologist talking. Like you fan the flames. You you support the interests you see in your kid. Yeah. And yeah. Um, you have to fundamentally believe there are more than five paths to a successful life. It's not like you're a failure life. If you don't play NFL football or become an investment banker or a doctor or a lawyer, like there, can you yeah, say that again? Can you just say that one more time? It's not a failure in life as a parent, nor is your child a failure. If they're pursuing something other than being in the NFL, being a doctor, yes. being a lawyer, being an investment banker, those are four things humans can do. And there are an infinite number of other things mm. And I tell in my latest book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, which is for people your age and younger and older, living your best adult life. I say, look, you got to be asking yourself, what am I good at? And what do I love? And what's the Venn diagram overlap of those things? Mm -hmm. Because you know, you can be good at it, but if you don't intrinsically feel like, "Mm, I love, this is my jam. Oh, I'm delighted to get to do this. Like you feel like a drone in your own life. And that's what happens to talented football players. And that's what happens to talented math kids. Like, oh, you should be an engineer. You're so good Mm. at math. Well, if you love it also go in that direction. Yeah. But I was the unhappy corporate lawyer. My trajectory is corporate law. Okay. I was good at it. Well-paid being groomed to be more important in that hierarchy. And it was sucking the life out of me because I had gone to law school to help humans in a public interest law sense, help those who need an advocate. But I was so insecure. I went in the direction of everyone values corporate law. So I should do that and please them and therefore be valued by them. And they, no amount of money in the world could compensate me for the misery. Yeah. You know, you have to love it and be good at it. Both are required for it to be a rewarding career. Yeah. I'm just thinking about what would it look like to have the space to just to cultivate that intrinsic passion um, for something that you do genuinely love to do. Um, Because I don't, I said that earlier, I don't know if I loved the game of football. I think I did at times, but I don't know if I was given permission to walk away. Would I have taken that opportunity? 
Because deep down, who Caleb really is, Caleb is a mystic. He's a storyteller. He's adventurous, right? He wants to uh, create safe and inclusive environments to help people heal. And football, it was a performance day after day. And I often talk about this because when I was six, I remember so clearly when my mom at a, a flag football game, I had just scored the game-winning touchdown, and I ran over to the sideline, and I she grabs my sweaty little red face, and she says, Caleb, you scored the game-winning touchdown. We love you so much. Mm-hmm. And my little six-year-old heart in that moment, as innocent and as honest as it was, just was taught to believe that my love is directly related to my performance in life. I'm so sorry. Oh, thank you. I know. Oh, I received that. So wow. much course mm-hmm. and she thought she was doing the right thing yeah i know and so yeah. much of my healing journey has been you know walking yeah. away from the nfl learning how to give that six-year-old boy the yes. you know unconditional, unconditional yeah. i love it because you're here my son and mm-hmm. oh you happen to score a great goal awesome but you know how are you do you want a snack like yeah. you know yeah there's a young woman i profile in in your turn which is full of stories of humans making their way and she was the math genius and the entire island of Puerto Rico wow. and constantly number one in her grade for the entire island going to international math Olympiads. And um, she came in, she got a silver medal one year and her mother was a pediatrician and they'd gone to the hospital to visit uh, one of her mother's patients. So there she is. Her mother has to attend to an urgent situation at the hospital. She brings her daughter with her because they'd been out on an errand when she got the page And so now everything's taken care of. They're kind of walking through the hallway and a colleague comes by and says to the mother, oh, hey, good to see you. Is this, this is your daughter? Which one? Because she has four kids. And she's like, oh, the the math daughter, right? And so the person's like, oh, I've heard so much about you. Your mother's so proud. And then the mother says, yeah, she just came back from the math Olympiad. She got a silver, you know, we're proud. It would have been better if she got a gold, but... That happened. She was 14 and she's, she's 30 something. And she's telling me the story through tears. Right. And yeah, we, we do that yeah. unwittingly. And it, what it did for me is it what you reference in the book is in what you said, like we do define success too narrowly. And what that reinforced to me is not just the way that I found love, but it's also the way that I found my sense of belonging in this life is through performance, i.e. through the football field. And so now when I get to this point in my adulthood and I have to ask a question, is football for me? I don't have the courage to ask that question because I've never been given the space and permission to ask my own questions and live out my own answers as much as I was told what to do in life. And believe me, this isn't just from my parents over parenting me. Inside of college at West Point, you're constantly told what to do. There is no space to ask questions, right? Even as a professional athlete, you're told what to do, where to be, what to eat, where to go. A lot of it just reinforced for the longest time that I have no agency over my own life. And therefore, I've never taken responsibility for my own life. But I couldn't deviate from the plan. Subconsciously, I could not deviate from the plan because this was success to me. And I know in your book, you talk about how when we narrow success down to this one way or looking like one way there is an onslaught of mental health challenges that come along with it right and I'm, I'm interested to hear more of your stories around that because what people don't know is the day that I was drafted and I talk openly about this but the day that I was drafted in the NFL became the second player in the history of West Point ever to give the permission to be drafted what they don't know is despite being on over national TV, I went home to my barracks at West Point that night and I found myself having my first panic attack. And I, and I 
thought I was dying, but the fear yeah. was, the fear is what if I don't make it and people see the truth about me, right? Yeah. Because there was no sense of agency. There was no identity. Like this was everything. And then those panic attacks would follow me all the way through yeah. the NFL and crippled my life. And a lot of it was because I saw success so narrowly. Mm. You are incredibly self-aware. I commend you. Thank you. People listening to this are like, whoa, wow, yes, right? This is the juice of our human experience. Yes. We need to do more of this mm. with our loved ones, with our friends, just vulnerable share. Or this is the shit I was actually dealing with. I had my, I, when you said I, you thought you were dying, I think I know what that might mm -hmm. have felt like because I began having panic attacks in my 40s around my performance as a speaker, um, something I was known for, good at. And um, uh, anyway, I won't go into too much detail there just for the sake of time, but I that fear of, you don't think it's panic because we're taught not to value the mental health stuff, yes. right? So you think you're having a stroke or a heart attack yes. or something, right, has come over you and like your, your body, which you know so well, is, you know, you feel distant from your own body, you feel, right, it's just terrifying. And yeah. So look, here's how I define success. I'm 53. I've got two graduate degrees. Um, I'm an upper middle class woman in Bay Area. Um, and I'm saying I acknowledging some of my privileges. Um, I think success is when you have a clear sense of your identity and you are living fully as that person, whatever that means to you. In other words, you're no longer, if you ever were ashamed to be the color, size, gender, uh, religion, uh, shape, way, you know, you're no longer yeah. ashamed of the various things. You're fully embracing this is who I am. This is what it means to be me. You've chosen to be in community, neighborhood, workplace, relationship with people who get you and yeah. love you as you are. So you are cherished for being you. Mm. Not if you get make the, the game-winning touchdown, right, or whatever, but just because you exist, like, they, they love and, and it's mutual. Um, and you're doing work that you're good at and you love. Doesn't matter how many dollars it comes with, doesn't matter how many awards it does or does not even have attached. Like, no, I get up and enjoy this work so much. I feel lucky to get to do it. I'm also getting paid. When the work itself has that intrinsic joy, like, mm, you know, nothing makes me happier than this. Oh, and I collect a paycheck too, which is great because it allows me to pay my bills. Boy, that's when life really sings. And these are all internally derived things, right? My identity is mine to own. My sense of the things I'm good at and love doing in a work sense are mine to derive. And when that, in, and then th that self-love ultimately, that acceptance of the self, I tell people, you know, when you accept yourself, you belong everywhere. Come on. Because there's nothing anyone can do to shoot you down because you're like, yeah. nope, I got, I know me. I know my worth and my value. I feel good about who I am and the ways in which I'm growing. And no, I'm not perfect. And no, I'm not everyone's cup of tea and I can't please everyone. And that's normal and fine. I love myself. Then um, we get to that real place of, of success of like, oh, I know who I am. And please, God, the universe and everybody, as I like to call the all of <laughs> please now let me live long enough. Mm. Let me live many decades in this place of self-love where I know what I want and what I'm doing. I've chosen to be in community and relationship with people 
whom I, who cherish me and I cherish them. Please let me live long enough now that I have worked my you know what yeah. out. <laughs> what I love about hearing you say that is, is two things. I want to make it clear this is available to everyone. Yeah. If you're willing to dive deep. This is available yeah. for you. If you're willing to ask hard questions and have brave conversations, it's available to you. And I just think back because as you're giving me your definition of success, which I think is just so beautifully put and well said, my entire healing journey, when, and I, when I say healing journey, is I walked away from the NFL and I found a, a church in Canada and I slept on the basement floor of this church in a boiler room and began therapy for about five years. I literally went from the NFL to sleeping on the basement floor of a, a boiler room and became a glorified janitor of a church because, and this had nothing about organized religion or anything like that. I just, for whatever reason, felt so called to this community and to these people. And it was that the beginning of my journey um, brought me to where I am today. And I can sit in here and you're mirroring to me now my life that I've cultivated within myself and it has man, like the overall sense of fulfillment and passion and purpose and just peace that I feel now is just like, Oh, this is life. And this is what's available to us. If we were willing to say yes to our own call. And so I think for me, a big part of that was taking the space in my life to, to challenge what success looks like. Yeah. What what does that look like? And I just want to, like, you know, just I encourage everybody else to do the same thing, especially if we can give that agency to the young people in our lives. I think I'm, you, I, I want to, you said something so, so profound along the same line. When it comes in the, inside your book, when it comes to the tangible measure of success, I think that a town's teen suicide rate is the better indicator than the number of kids with top grades or perfect SAT scores. Like, oh my gosh. I mean, Caleb, you're talking to someone who lives in Silicon Valley. Mm. I live in Palo Alto, California in the shadow of Stanford University, where, as you know, I was a dean for some time. I raised my kids here. I thought I got them to the best public schools in the area. By some measures, I did. But we had two suicide clusters in our teenage community over the course of my kids' middle school and high school years. And I drive past that school now and I just, and my kids have now graduated from that school. And I think, my goodness, what, what have I done? What choices have we made as the elders, the parents, the, the educators, those who have allowed this very narrow definition of success to Come persist, on. make our kids feel like robots, puppets, dogs. Um, sometimes I think we make them feel like stocks in the stock market. Like, how are you performing today? I have to decide whether to invest more and you buy more of you or sell you off, you know, you, you feel like a commodity in a big system. You know, the system needs great football players. You will be one of them. Yeah. Right. As opposed to like, I am a person who's interested in human development and in wellness and, in you know, so do you, I mean, I know what I look, we are strangers. You reached out to me yes. on Instagram or somewhere yeah. on awesome I found and we are like i feel like i know you i feel like i want to know you i feel like we are now in each other's um orbits um when you define your work now mm -hmm. uh like i am here this is my work this is what matters to me this is what brings me joy in the context of work how do you describe it yeah i think in the time uh, the context of work and what i uh, long to do is i want to create safe and inclusive environments and share a message and, and really facilitate brave conversations on how we can begin to expand our lives consciously. Yeah. 
Because when we expand our lives consciously, we inevitably become more emotionally aware, present, and connected people. And when we become emotionally aware, present, and connected, we unlock our lives. That's what will you do. We unlock our lives and everyone wins. Our relationships win. Our self-worth yeah. wins, our sense of purpose wins, our fulfillment wins, and most importantly, our mental health and our emotional wellness wins. Right. And people are saying, but what about the dollars? But what about the dollars? What would you say to that? I believe in the law of abundance. And as I offer value from, from me, like authentic value from the depths of my own brokenness and despair that has been alchemized into beauty now, I'm offering value into this world and value that goes out has to come back. And so it's, it's, it's believing in something bigger than myself. This message isn't just from me. This message was birthed through me. And it's yeah. in this ecosystem of love that it's all about abundance. There's always more than enough. And as I can begin to really understand my innate value because of my story and the pain that I've, I've trudged through and in the, in the purpose that I've birthed on the other side of it, there's value to this. And so how would I not be recognized by the universe and monetary value or, or maybe not monetary, but relationships? Absolutely. I will have enough to keep me going, right? Come my on. life is full of abundance, right? And the ways in which we tend to measure it, salary, did you get a bonus this year? Like, yeah, I tell, I just did a, an assembly at the start of the show before we went on, you know, you started taping. I said, I came out of a yes. Stressful morning, but a good morning. I was doing an assembly with seniors at some of New York's most elite independent high schools. And, um, um, oh shoot, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh, come. Oh, I was telling them that, um, about a little bit of my own journey from corporate law, uh, where I was earning up here and, and on an upward trajectory to university administration, which was a step down, uh, significant step down in income. But the work was intrinsically rewarding to me. Mm. And I said to them, often they have to pay you the biggest bucks to do the work because right. otherwise you wouldn't do it. <laughs> uh, so the work that, you know, school teachers tend to be very underpaid in American society, but often find it to be that true calling where they are delighted every day to have the chance uh -huh to be alongside young humans unfolding in this messy thing we call growing up. And they feel such intrinsic reward from it that, you know, yes, the salary matters too, because they got to pay for yes. something, but you know, the work itself, when the work itself delivers its own rewards, um, whoo, that's a beautiful thing. It changes your whole life experience. It, it, it literally elevates your human experience here on earth. It does. What did your mom think when you, um, I, and I've got to jump soon. Cause yes, yes. I want to respect your time radio somewhere soon. Um, but when you were lying on the floor, you were like on the floor of a church in Canada, presumably you left Detroit, fled to Canada. You're on a church floor, basically the janitor for five years healing yourself. What was happening with your mother? There had to be, uh, at the first, I, I, I recognized early on that I had to set boundaries um, I'm a big advocate for us to begin to experience transformation in life. We have to create the physical and the emotional space to make and to allow that transformation to happen. Physical space happened by me walking away from a career and finding an ecosystem of uh, support and unconditional acceptance that allowed me to be vulnerable enough to begin to shed the masks and shed the facade so that I can be here's Caleb, here's I am, here I am, here's my pain. But I also had to create the emotional space by setting hard boundaries. And I think 
what's so challenging about this journey is that it's a lonely one at times until you find your people that you had mentioned in your definition of success. And usually the people who have been with you on this journey up until this point are not the, the, sometimes the people that are going to go with you. And that's a reckoning and that's hard, hard. And it's a season of a deep grief. And so I just had to set clear boundaries. And the hard part really was, is that I couldn't really explain why I was doing what I was doing. There's just this pull from within me that was taking me forward in life, an invitation I was saying yes to, because I knew the way that life would turn out if I didn't. And initially it was hard, but over time, as I began to expand and been able to uh, verbalize and communicate the deeper workings of my heart, people started to make and make aware or understand what I was doing with my life. Because at first it was like, I was getting, I got a call from a three-star general from West Point. said, Caleb, what are you doing? You're making the biggest mistake of your life. And I'm saying, sir, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Literally a three saw a phone call, a three-star general phone call, cell phone. I was like, sir, I have no idea what to tell you. Like my heart's telling me to go. So my family thought I was crazy. My best friends from West Point thought I was crazy. All my mentors in my life thought I was crazy, but I honored my truth and I would do it a million and one times over again. I'm so happy for you. Thank you. I'm happy for you. I'm happy to know you. And I hope that we can stay in touch. We will. Can I ask you one more question? This is my final question. I'm curious. What do you wish are the words that you would have heard more often as a young person from the adults or parents of your life? What are the words that you wish you would have heard more often from the adults or parents in your life? I love you no matter what. Mm. I'm proud of you for all these things, but I would be, but I would love you even if the, it was the opposite of those things. And I'm always here if something ever goes down and you just need somebody safe to just come and share it with, I'm here. No questions asked. I'm here. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. And thanks for being here today. Thank you. Thank you, Caleb. Great to meet you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.